The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. This morning, and uh, I'm Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show. I'm here with Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, welcome. Uh, good to be back in the studio. Yeah, you're down in Dallas, Plano yeah. and Dallas area. Right. So, uh, that's where I'm headed Friday. So <laughs> I'll be down there a few days. And I'm here with Certified Financial Planner Professional and Retirement Income Certified Professional, David Rudy, who works with me at Rudy Wealth Management. David, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You're just glad I picked you up for, to get here today, aren't you? I know. And for the people who are usually listening on Facebook Live. I'm in the process of getting that set up. So oh, okay. it'll be up in a minute. I know you're working on that. You can call in with your questions at 356-9397 or text us at the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 351-5357. We also, as David said, we'll shortly we'll have our Facebook Live up and we want to welcome those folks who tune in each time. We do seems to be a growing list of people. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. I think that makes sense. Fred, things look pretty good. I mean, here, let me just rattle a few off. Uh, we have total household net worth now almost $107 trillion, up over 50% from the pre-2008 highs. By the way, liabilities are up only 7% from their Great Recession highs. I think that's pretty positive. Uh, Households net worth hit an all-time high and nominal real, which are inflation adjusted, (coughs) and per capita terms. Household leverage liabilities as a percent of total assets fell to a 33-year low. So that's certainly a change since the the bubble times. Housing values have increased only uh, by about 15% since their 2006 bubble high. So it looks like in the aggregate, housing has has improved, but it hasn't certainly got back to bubble-esque. Right, but that, it doesn't appear like that, it. The bubble was not normal either, so it's uh, uh, not, yeah. getting back to there is actually probably a considerable improvement. To, yeah, yeah, when you think about it, because yeah. it was distorted. Uh, households have been busy deleveraging, saving, and investing. And the housing market is back on its feet and healthy, that's for sure. And uh, it looks to me like... Uh, now we've had on the on the other side. I'm sure people have noticed uh, after being up a fairly decent return at the beginning of the year. October kind of gave us the not so much of a surprise October, and and basically gave back all the gains for the year. And it, then subsequently last week or so uh, rallied back, and now it's kind of it seemed investor sentiment is back where it was, pretty close to where it was in 2009 at the bottom. So it certainly investors have turned. I don't know if I could say excessively pessimistic, but certainly when you measure it against, you know, pr- pretty bad times. Uh, and it tends to be a contrary indicator, though it's not right. perfect. Yeah, we uh, had this long period of uh, what most people consider uh, unusually stable kind of uh, market conditions. But in the last several months, it's been quite different. For example, we've gone through almost a mini cycle since the last uh, broadcast. Uh, it was uh, up about... Uh, a thousand points and then back down exactly uh, and so there's a saying that the uh, lord giveth and the lord taketh and that may be a situation because if you ask 
me to explain, uh, I probably couldn't because I couldn't explain why it went up after sure, the sure. election, and uh, I can't explain why it went down after it, it went it up. It may be independent, right? right? So I've noticed over my 35-year careers, uh, when markets, and we had a 10% correction, so it was the yeah. second one of the year, they don't tend to go up in what we call a V style, like up right away. Yeah. They tend to want to say, well, okay, we're going to improve for a while, but we better go down and test where we were a week or two ago to see if really things are okay. Uh, so it seems like everything's okay except the stock market. But on the other hand, it's still it's positive still great, for the yeah, year in the yeah. broad, uh, from a broad sense, from a global perspective, a little bit tougher. Um, Federal Reserve decided not to, and I don't think it was a shock to anybody. They didn't increase interest rates this most recent round, but they're still suggesting right. that there's probably... And it's still got to go up. Obviously, uh, it's a long-term process, but I'm sure that some investors have noticed that uh, there are now ads in the paper about uh, CD rates. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> that didn't exist for uh, years and years and years. Right. And what a change that is from basically not, it wasn't even worth hardly putting an ad in the paper for a bank yeah. to advertise a, a CD that paid a quarter of a percent, but now they're the, the 2% plus in front of it. Uh, right. Uh, from an historical basis, still very, very low, but from where we were, the more recent historical basis, uh, what a wild improvement that is. I still think that is one of the investment fallacies um, that continues is that CDs are safe. Now, depending on how you want to uh, define safety, sure, you, you don't have to worry about your principal and all that. But for people that are living off the income stream from CDs, to watch them, your income fall 90% over a five to 10 year period, right. certainly for, for those people, it seemed to not be anything right. safe. And I think the, the thing we've mentioned on uh, numerous occasions is that uh, if you're living off your income, your income is not just your interest, it's also right. your capital gains. That's sure. Like, yeah. Yeah. And dividends. And, well, and, and I think people, even retirees especially, have a hard time switching to that accumulation mode uh, where, you know, for two or three or four decades, they're, if, if they're saving at all. They're putting money maybe in a 401k plan. And so they're constantly accumulating. They pay less attention to it. It uh, becomes a different dynamic for sure. We've talked about it a number of times in the show when you go into retirement. There still is this mentality of I don't want to touch principal. And I'm not sure that's appropriate. I, I think, you know, there's, I think for people that if they're going to want to uh, have a retirement that they're actually going to enjoy, they have to consider the possibility that some of their principal is going to get used. And certainly if you invest in equities, you almost have to because uh, most of your, or a good percentage of your return is in uh, gains, not in uh, dividends. And there's always times when, uh, you know, I always tell prospective clients, look, uh, we always play it really conservative the first few years um, because uh, one of the things that can really rock a, a, a three-decade retirement is really bad years on the front end of retirement. So we try to play it really carefully there. Um, but... You know, it's it's really difficult when you go to this de decumulation phase, and you're let's just say you have a half a million dollars saved, and you're going to spend until you get Social Security, you're going to spend forty or fifty thousand dollars. I mean, I wouldn't spend that much, twenty or twenty five, a couple thousand a month from your investment portfolio, and then you get a year where, not only does it not maybe go up the first year, your overall portfolio, maybe it declines a little bit, and you've spent twenty or $25,000. Right. It really becomes unnerving, but we've talked about that certainly a lot in this. Economy still seems to be growing. Now, a lot of people follow this long-term trends, guys. They're, they're trend followers. I'll use a, there's a lot of different formats, but a real common one is a 10-month moving average, and people 
you know, follow these tools. And, mm. it, and that trend has turned bearish. But it strikes me when I look at all the historical data, Fred, uh, when the economy is as strong as it is, and it's clearly, you know, it's, it's, it's not mm. unparalleled, even though Donald Trump likes to think it's the best economy right. in the world. And I, I, it certainly compared to what it was, it probably feels that way for sure. And I'm not trying to get political here. Uh, though I guess I'm inviting it, but I'm not. Uh, <laughs> but when the economy's growing, even Goldman Sachs came out with anything. I've talked about this uh, chart before. The chances of a more than a 10% decline in the broad U.S. stock market is like 4%. So right. it, it, it strikes me that even when the trend is kind of bearish, and the, but if when the economy is as strong as it is, it usually the bullish case wins right. out. Though one never knows. Yeah, one and, never knows. Yeah, the other thing is where, where there's no particular... Uh, sign on the horizon of a recession, but when a recession comes, right. it's quite unlikely to be like uh, 2007 to 2009. Uh, a normal recession is uh, uh, discomforting, but it's not uh, not uh, scary like uh, like we had in the, 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 cra- the crash of 2008. There's no question that when we look at the lost decade, uh, so it started off 2000 with a 50% broad market decline in the U.S. Global investors fared much better, but in that mm-hmm. one, the broad U.S. market was down 50%. And you normally, at least I normally, when I read history, I think, well, we all get one of those in our investing lifetime. We just got ours. And then seven or eight years later, we get a decline that was even it was even uh, uh, greater in magnitude, <clears throat> down some 57%. And I think that recency bias is, in, in, in some ways it's a good thing, but in some ways it's not. It's a good thing, I guess, for people to understand that, look, if you can't sit through a 50% decline in your stock market portion of your portfolio, you probably don't belong in equities. Uh, but yet, on the other hand, I think it's conditioned us to think that's what all broad market declines look like. And what what I'm hearing from you is that was an extraordinary recession. They called it the Great Recession. Right. It only makes sense that the earnings would go down so much. And, and of course, capital always outruns itself. Uh, but a normal type of recession, it's a slowdown for a period of quarters. But it's not the, you know, it's just, it's a more, uh, it's a more passive decline. Right. It's, it's not... Uh, a financial crisis, which is what we had in the uh, 2008 period, uh, the kind of typical uh, recession is one that's more or less uh, caused indirectly by the uh, Federal Reserve tightening interest rates. Uh, the economy slows down a little bit and then uh, gets back to normal. Uh, right now, it's not as uh, as pressing because we have such low inflation rates, so the the Fed doesn't have to raise rates very very rapidly. Yeah, and of course, uh, rising interest rates from the Federal Reserve is a sign that the economy is improving. Uh, and so it's, you've talked about that a number of times. Right. It's kind of this paradox that... Yeah, they're, they're, yeah they're, they're good news and bad news can both <laughs> impact the stock market, and sometimes good news can impact it negatively because it suggests that interest rates will be rising in the future because the Fed wants to tighten things. And speaking of employment, you know, there's we have almost record low unemployment we have more jobs than there are people and that's certainly not indicative of a pre-recessionary type of indication you'd get you would normally see uh you know the employment situation decline and and become uh, not so favorable before you get into recession we have the opposite of that doesn't mean you can't does that mean we can't have a recession anytime soon or just the probability unlikely but again uh we're not great at predicting Recession. Nobody is. Uh, But just it it seems sensible sensible that it it certainly, there's not a lot of people calling for a recession anytime soon. Doesn't mean it can't happen. Well, there's always some people who are are predicting it all all the time. Full time, (laughs) every time, and that that continues uh, to ride. 
again, uh, f Fed is indicating that, look, they, they're still going to increase interest rates this year, maybe one more time next year. Two, uh, the market is, when you look at the market, and you look at it by the futures rates, so there's this kind of this thought that the market also has its probability meter of how many increases we're going to have next year. The Fed's kind of hinting at three, and the market's saying, well, we think there's maybe a couple of yeah. them. But it's certainly not, if when we have a two and a quarter percent Fed funds rate, and that's just the bank interlending rate between banks, and that's one the Fed really directly controls. But at two and a quarter percent, uh, and a two and a quarter inflation rate, it's it's anything but tight. Is that would I be correct in that? I think so. <clears throat> I, I think that makes sense. So, so I think now everybody's gonna the stock market and everybody or and all the pundits are gonna turn their eyes to November. To, I mean December to see what the Federal Reserve is going to do. Right. But again, it, it again it's a it's the sign of why are they <laughs> doing this? Because things in the economy yeah. are improving, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing for companies. They tend to do better. They, you know, employment is, is obviously a, an indication of that. Um, but about the time we all get excited or get rosy, our rosy glasses on, rose-colored glasses on, <clears throat> is about we about the time we get, you know, we get. Yeah, there is one one credible, uh, scary story. Uh, uh, two uh, really famous economists, Martin Feldstein and and uh, Lawrence Summers. Uh, suggest that there may be some problems in the interest rates uh, increases may have some impact on stock market prices, which will then impact people's uh, willingness to spend so that that could generate some. And th then the uh, kicker is that we don't have the uh, uh, kind of uh, of reservoir to, to pump up the economy because the rates are already, interest rates are already low. We're already running a, a really large deficit. So that's the, that's the scary story. But they've been talking about that for Five or ten years. Uh, clearly, uh, look. I guess it always gets back to we just really don't know what the right. future holds. If we have a lifetime view, it's probably that the U.S. economy can can uh, can increase at a two to four interest, two to four percent annual real after inflation growth rate. Uh, it's usually trend line inflate, uh, growth is somewhere in between there, um, which is. You've talked about this a number of times. Um, We've seemed to have gone from uh, thinking generally that you know we had seven or eight or nine years of two percent real gross domestic right. product growth. At that okay, we can't even get to three or three and a half. Now we're at three, right. and now I'm. It seems like everybody's saying, "Well, that's not such a big deal." But a right. difference between over the next generation or two between a two and a three percent rate is pretty significant, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's huge. I mean, using the uh the uh, rule of 72, your income would double in 36 years at 2% and 18 years at uh, at 3%. So that's a big difference. And so the, and that's, is, is that why, because we've had this, not constant, but right. overall trend line growth rate of somewhere around 3% real GDP, is this why generation to generation we, we seem to think that each generation is better off than the last one? Right. It's the idea of, of well, first of all, we have growth and then uh, the compounding effect is really substantial. Uh, people may think that uh, growth is a normal thing, but until the uh, uh, late 1700s, 1800s, uh, we had very, very little economic growth to go back a thousand years or two thousand years, and the standard of living wasn't a whole lot different from uh, then until the uh, 1600s, 1700s. And it's taken off where you had this uh, growth of one or two or three percent a year and over 
centuries, it has a, a fantastic impact. And, and even on mortality, right? I mean, right. I mean, somehow they're connected. Everything, they're yeah. intertwined, right? Right. Uh, we, we, it's, it's pretty scary when you go back and look at life expectancy yeah. at 1800 yeah. or 1850 right. or 1750. You just, you can't hardly imagine it was yeah. so low. Yeah, that was the same. The arithmetic's the same. We, we often talk about uh, it's only 1% fees in your investment. If sure. You, but uh, 1% uh, of your investment over a period of time is a huge it uh, adds amount. up. It, yeah. it, you know, there, it certainly adds up, and, and one needs to be careful there. Um, I'm going to switch a little bit. Again, you're listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money on WDWS. You can call us 356-9397. See if I can remember the Castle Heating and Cooling text line, 3515357. Uh, so if you'd like to text us, that's fine. We I occasionally look glance over to the screen in time and pick up on that. Um, David wrote, you wrote an article. It's a blog. Um, and it, uh, I thought it was really good. The psychology of social security claiming strategies. I liked it because it's, it's it's kind of motivated by the countless conversations we have with prospective clients on this. And there's so many layers of confusion when it comes to social security. Tell us a little more about the background of why you just you wake up one day and I mean I know that we like to and you can go to RudyWealth.com and and the the guys are uh, I don't write so many uh, blogs though I'm trying to change that but the, the my guys do um, and I think this is a good one because one of the building blocks of any retirement of course is Social Security when prospective clients walk in they treat Social Security or they for some reason they all almost universally seem to treat it like well it's not that much but it's really a ton of money in in, in the backdrop of a, a plan when you think whether it's twelve hundred dollars a month or twenty five hundred dollars a month for a couple or three thousand a month when you start thinking about that's an inflation adjusted uh you know uh, income stream it's really significant much more significant than i think people think so it's really important then in the in, in the context of a two to three decade retirement to figure that out. So what is it that brought you to write that? Well, I think the title really alludes to the fact that this is kind of covering one niche area of social security claiming. Um, I really didn't intend it to be um, a comprehensive article about all the factors involved in claiming social security. No, because that would be literally a book. It would be, and it's just not what I was getting at. And really, the motivation for this was, you know, we'll do financial plans and part of every retirement plan that we do for a client is, when are you going to claim Social Security? And most of the time, our plans will show, hey, at least one should delay Social Security. Usually not two. Usually, you know, for married couples, a lot of times it's a compromise. One claims earlier and one delays till 70, typically the higher earner. Now, then you show them that financial plan and you explain the rationale and you get some sort of variation of the response like, okay, and you can kind of see the wheels turning and you're like, well, you know, I can tell you're not super thrilled or excited about that idea. What's, you know, the issue? And they say, well, I just feel better if I claimed it earlier. And so I typically, you know, if you ask why, there are a few different reasons. That yeah, what's, get, what, what's, what's the primary? Time and time again. What would you say the primary reason is or uh, the first one that you usually are going to hear in that conversation? I would say by far the most common is the first one that I listed in this article is, well, I need to get the benefits while I can. In other words, I'm worried that Social Security is going to go bankrupt because I've heard that they don't have enough tax revenues to fund uh, the expenditures, and I want to make sure that I get my benefits while I can before they go away. Oh, and, and so as long as Fred's here, uh, 
I'm 62, so let's put it in context. I'm not 22, mm -hmm. I'm 62. Uh, how worried do you think from a zero to 10 scale is that attitude? I better get it before they before it goes away. I think it's probably not uh, a great concern for someone uh, near retirement. It's very unlikely they'll they'll change that. The wor worst in terms of not not necessarily the worst in terms of public policy, but the worst in in terms of um, impact on an individual might be that they would uh, decrease the uh, the, the uh, inflation adjustment things of that sort, which would be Means irritating, but but small yeah. uh, small changes. So I don't think there's much risk if you're. 30, uh, a lot of things could change between now and then. Uh, Social Security could become more means-tested where uh, you we either pay a higher tax rate or offset some other incomes, things of that sort. But for a, a person at or near retirement, I think it's probably not much of a concern. Okay, so maybe a zero to 10, a one or a two? Yeah. If even that? Right. And I mean, even, I mean, I guess concern is one thing but what do you do about it is another thing so if that's the case it's almost a zero so yep. what do you do about that then if that is the concern well and i th i think the whole premise of this article kind of addresses that question to a certain degree is look i'm not saying the three issues we're going to talk about aren't issues they are issues but i think they're really blown out of proportion and misunderstood by a lot of clients yet they end up making their decisions solely based on their fear, their fear of these three different kind of concerns. And my recommendation was, look, we can address these issues and we can talk about the fact that they are very real issues, but let's put them in perspective. Let's talk about the benefits of delaying and the or potential benefits of delaying, the potential issues with delaying that you're concerned about, the actual likelihood of the things that you're worried about coming to fruition. And then let's make an educated decision about what's best for your life in the context of not just what's best financially, but also, you know, at the end of the day, I think emotions should play a role. And that's kind of what, how we're going to wrap things up. But, you know, I, I honestly, at the end of the day, usually Social Security is not a make or break type of decision. And so we do let emotions play into that decision making a little bit, but I don't want it to be the sole factor. So uh, do you find sometimes... Look, if they really let's just let's suppose a standard issue advice might be the higher earner delays until seventy and the lower earning spouse files for benefits at full retirement age, somewhere around sixty six, sixty seven, somewhere in that zone these days. Uh if you see that there's real stress going on in there, um is it enough of an attitude issue where you go, look, here's what it looks like. It's not that big of a difference. Uh Sometimes we don't get to optimize. Uh, if if it if you're going to have a better psychological and, and a retirement with less worry, if you take it at both at 66, is that fair game, or do you have to draw the line, or I think where do you, how do you deal with that? I think so. And really, we're kind of jumping out of order here, but the the last paragraph of my article essentially says that, and it says, look, as long as it's not going to really harm you financially. To claim earlier if that's really at the end of the day once you have these other concerns more in inappropriate perspective so first kind of address those things make sure you're not just fearing things unnecessarily but if you still just feel after after you gain that better understanding of these issues if you still just feel better claiming it earlier and it doesn't materially cause a, a financial risk or, or increase the likelihood of you running out of money substantially, then go ahead and claim early. And a lot of times 
it is a subtle difference. It's okay, well, the probability of success of your financial plans, you know, 5% lower or whatever it might be. Okay, you can spend one or $2,000 less per year. It's not if you typically really a huge magnitude yeah. issue. The psychology could work either way, though. You could say, uh, I haven't claimed. I'm looking forward. When I get to 70, if things don't go as well as I expected, I'm going to have this higher income stream uh, kick again at uh, at 70. And the, the return between 65 and 70 is fairly substantial. Exactly. And that's kind of what I talked about in the, the second bullet. But so, And the second issue is really kind of the other side of the coin of of the first one, which is I need to get benefits kind of while I can. It's, it's I could pass away early. And so, in other words, uh, I may miss out on the payments if I get this, if I make this decision to delay and I wake up on a cloud earlier than the statistics say I'm going to. Yep. And that was the second one. And before I even get into that, I okay. want to mention one thing. And we've mentioned it before on the show, but for people who haven't heard, you know, when we've discussed it before, actually close to about two thirds of Social Security benefits that are paid out right now are covered by just their current tax receipts. And I think that gives people peace of mind hearing that because it's not like, okay, um, you know, we're running a deficit, worst case scenario, your benefits go away completely. It's like, no, if they made zero changes, and basically what they do right now is they fund the shortfall through surpluses that they had earlier that's put into a trust fund and it helps fund it. Well, that's that's projected to run out, I think it's around 2030, and I need to look at the data again, um, but it's somewhere around there. So first of all, we have a little bit of a, a window before it's projected to run out, but even when it does, well, we're still getting about two-thirds of the benefits covered in current tax revenues. And then you talk about, uh, you know, Dr. Gertz talked about some of the adjustments you can make. You can means test Social Security. You can increase the full retirement age. You can decrease the inflation adjustment. Um, there's just a number of things that you can adjust and probably that they'll retro or probably apply to younger people, not the people who are, right. you know, and, as, uh, you, I don't think uh, anyone could imagine uh, Congress saying, uh, we're going to cut your Social Security benefits by one-third starting next year. Exactly. That would be political right. suicide. And, and from every time I go and vote, yeah. you know, I'm, sometimes I'm the youngest guy in line. You know? yeah. and so that's a pretty big, it's a pretty big voting pool. Fred, and I don't want to go off t- a too big of a tangent here, it's, it, part of this could be solved, I'm not suggesting it should be, with more immigration, more legal immigration, potentially. I mean, well, part of the reason a lot of countries have trouble is they just don't have enough births in their country. Right. You know, they're not. Yeah, really we're in between. We're not Japan or Italy right. or Spain, uh, so we're we're growing, but growing very slowly. But uh, immig- I don't think immigration should be decided on uh, the uh, social insurance question. But certainly, having a pool, I mean, if you do it uh, wisely. Uh, you get people that you don't have to pay to educate. Sure. They come in uh, basically Skills. at full speed and start paying uh, the benefits. They won't qualify for another uh, 40 years or so. And that's so what the, Australia does, I know, yeah. just for some reason. I, yeah. I know it. There's basically you're not going to stay there unless you're skilled. Right. You're, you're in but there's also it's not like opening the borders to, oh, the, no. to uh, the caravan or something. <laughs> well, agreed. So, Dave, getting back to that, um, so I may not – I may re- – regret my decision if I wake up on a cloud early. Yeah, and I again, this is a very real potential issue. Yeah, if you wait to, if you say, okay, my plan is to claim Social Security at 70, and then you die when you're 64 years old, well, you never receive benefits at all during your lifetime, and that is just not a great scenario, obviously. Um, but I, 
the way I think about this is what's the likelihood of that happening? And I always think of most financial decisions as, you know, there's always a risk to any financial decision you make, and there's uncertainty. And I think ultimately you have to say, what's going to give me the, the, the best outcome in the highest number or highest percentage yeah. of scenarios? And so I look at this decision as, okay, well, what, what is a, the life expectancy of someone who's call it 62 years old you could you know claim basically that next month or you could delay till 70 and what's the likelihood of me living past or living long enough to make it worthwhile to delay because if you delay yeah you're getting um initially it's a little less than eight percent but you get uh, basically an increase in benefits for every year that you delay and then i happen to know between full retirement age and 70 you get an 8% increase in your benefits every year beyond that. Okay. So there's a very significant benefit to delaying so Social Security, but at the same time, well, you just chose not to receive anything for eight years. So you have to live long enough receiving those higher benefits to basically recoup the foregone benefits for the first eight years. So we're, we're really just always, as you said, uh, there's trade-offs, right? You're just trading one. You're always trading one risk off for another. Is that right? That's exactly right. And I'm looking through my article because I don't have these statistics memorized. But, you know, I used a tool called the Longevity Illustrator. It was created by the Society of Actuaries. And it's it's really pretty sophisticated as far as calculators go for projecting longevity. And what it showed was for a 62-year-old single non-smoking male in average health, he had a 70% chance of living to age 80. And just for, for background information, that break-even point for delaying between 62 and 70 is around age 81. So in other words, you have a really high likelihood of living past that break-even point. And the break-even point, as one reader had mentioned, it depends on the discount rate you use, but... Um, that's based on basically using the tips yield as a discount Treasury rate. inflation protected. It's around period. age 81. So to me, that's saying, okay, odds suggest you're probably going to live long enough to benefit. Okay. We are going to go to John on line two. John, how can we help you today? You there, John? Line two? Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yes. <laughs> Appreciate the good advice over the years. Have Thank you. Many years. Thank you. Uh, you used to publish a Vanguard retirement portfolio model on your website and i can't find it and i'm finally old enough to use it <laughs> you know what know uh, there and i'm not looking in the right place or what it is okay so i could probably do it from memory and that's maybe that's something we'll fire up again um and actually one of the things we're going to talk about perhaps in this show is kind of the default position can be the vanguard total u.s stock market index or the vanguard total world index uh, or you could do that at Fidelity in the same way. But basically, it was a blend of uh, the S&P 500, uh, the Vanguard U.S. large value. And, and, I'll, and I'll, what I'll do is I'll, for the next show, if you'll listen, or call me at 356-1400. I should be able to pull that up and give it to you. Uh, but it was a blend of S&P. So 70% U.S., 30, uh, no, it was 80% U.S., 20% international. Uh, and again, this is this is not my advice. It's just saying here's a reasonable model to consider. I always have to do my regulatory work here. Pardon me, John, uh, mm. for you to consider, not to do it. Uh, so, uh, 80% U.S., 20% international. In the U.S., 
it was dominated by the S and P 500 index, some U.S. Um, U.S. large value index fund, and then they have a REIT fund, which is a real estate investment trust fund, was about seven uh, percent of the overall equity portfolio. Uh, and then from there, some small and small value. That was pretty much it in the U.S. I'm not giving you the answer you want, so uh, no, go ahead, I David. So one one thing that's worth noting is I think nowadays it, you can actually accomplish the same thing in a much simpler fashion. Um, they have actually a total global stock market index fund and ETF. Vanguard does. Right. Um, the ticker symbol for their ETF is actually it's V as in Victor and then T. That's their total world stock ETF. Right. And that's going to be subtly different than what he described because I but, think it holds so close. everything in its market cap weight. So it has a little more international. Um, but it's going to include a small portion of that's in real estate in REITs, publicly traded REITs. So in that one fund, you basically can cover your equity exposure. And then you could combine that with like their short-term bond fund or even the, the, the global, their aggregate bond fund. <laughs> The the main thing that you really can't give a blanket answer on is you know how much should be in stocks versus bonds, and that's honestly a lot more important than the sub allocation. So feel free to call me, uh, but I think Dave, you're right. I think you know things have changed. There's, vehicles have gotten less expensive. They've gotten more diversified, and so there's a lot of kind of like I can take one pill now instead of five or six pills. And I really think for a global investor that the, the, the default fund could be the Vanguard Total World Market Index Fund and then something like the Vanguard Short-Term Corporate, high-quality corporate bond fund would be certainly a suitable. Guys, my phone is not uh, hanging in there, okay. so I'm going to hang up. Sounds Thanks good. Thanks much. for calling. All right, Jim. Mm. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, but, you know, maybe that's something we'll bring back on and we'll, we'll certainly consider it. And if anybody wants to call my office, 356-1400. Let me go back I'll to entertain uh, it. Go uh, Dave's point. I, if you're hyper uh, uh, risk averse, you could combine uh, a, a, a late uh, activation of Social Security along with term life insurance and you could uh, probably come out ahead. And, sure, and, if that, and, and if the uh, term people don't sell you the insurance, you probably should claim early. <laughs> that's true. If you can't get yeah. your underwriting, claim early. That's a, actually that's that's a, kind of brilliant. I never really thought about that aspect of it, Fred. Uh, and, and so uh, that's a good point. And one last point on this is if you're married, you need to take into account the joint life expectancy um, of the hu- well, the two spouses. Um, reason being... You know, if you delay one person's benefit, not only does it increase their benefit for their lifetime, it's going to increase the survivor benefit for the surviving spouse. So especially when there's a big discrepancy between the two benefits, having the higher earner delay, there's a really high likelihood that one of the two spouses is going to live long enough to make it worthwhile delaying. Well, go over, when we were driving here today, you you said you kind of boiled it down to you know, a few things to make that consideration about delaying or not delaying. Can you go over that? Yeah. So I think too, sometimes people overcomplicate things and they start worrying about dollars and cents under certain scenarios. And I really liked how one financial author, his name's Michael Kitsis, framed it. And he said, look, what is the worst case scenario for someone who's taking a retirement income from an investment portfolio? The worst case scenario is they have poor investment returns over their lifetime, they have high inflation over their lifetime, and um, what's the last one I was just talking about? And then longevity. And then living a long time. Well, what's the best case scenario for someone who delays Social Security? You have 
poor investment returns, making it a smart decision <laughs> to delay right. to delay Social Security. You have high inflation because Social Security is going to increase to offset that inflation, and really long life, I- extreme longevity because it in, it lasts for the rest of your lifetime. It's guaranteed for the rest of your life. So he looks at it as like a hedge against that worst case kind of perfect storm for a retiree who's taking withdrawals from a retirement portfolio. And I think that's probably the most important thing. And and the way he frames it is, yeah, sure. Say you have a pretty aggressive, you can call, we'll just call it a high stock allocation in your investment portfolio. And maybe returns are good for your ages, you know, between 62 and 70 or even over your lifetime. Right. And they're so good to make you technically better off having claim Social Security early so you could keep that money invested and letting it continue to grow. Well, that's not really that bad of a scenario. Yeah, you might say, okay, well, theoretically, you would have been a little better off if you would have claimed early. But that's still a good scenario because you harmful. had really good returns. But the flip side is is not, is not is basically the opposite. It's, okay, well, let's say you claim early and then returns are really bad and uh, you live a super long time and inflation's really high, that can devastate you. And so it kind of delaying is a, a hedge against those really bad things. And then even in the scenarios where maybe you would have been better off not delaying, it's still not so bad. And kind of finally on this, uh, you kind of alluded to it that, look, uh, we can try to optimize all we, we want to try, but we're never going to do it because we don't know what the future holds. And so there has to be a realistic aspect of finding that right strategy that's not just purely mathematically right, but part of its attitude issue that allows the people to actually enjoy the retirement. And that's really the whole purpose of trying to do all this planning to begin with, is it not? Exactly. And we can cover the last one real quickly. Sure. The, the last concern that I hear is, well, I need the income. And I think that's just a simple misunderstanding that you know, if you don't claim Social Security, then that's you don't get to spend that amount. But when you're building a financial plan, if you have financial assets that you can withdraw from, it's really kind of a non-issue because you know that you're going to have higher benefits down the road and you have that Social Security income stream kicking in. You can withdraw a, a lot more from your investment portfolio on the front end. So all you do is, you know, if your Social Security was going to be a 1000 a month at 62 or whatever it is, well, you just withdraw a thousand a month more from your investment portfolio. You end up in the same place, and you smooth that consumption over your lifetime, or or potentially better in some cases. Yeah, usually better, and that's kind but of the it's point. Not, not it's not a lock. It's not a certainty that you're going to be better off. And then that that raises concerns a lot of times, um, just because it can be scary. You know, if you're withdrawing five, six, seven, maybe eight percent from your investment portfolio, things that are not sustainable over your lifetime, but we're talking about a handful of years that you're doing it. You know, it is sustainable, but it's scary because you're going to expect your portfolio to drop. And if you have a portfolio decline and then you withdraw another eight percent from your portfolio, that's psychologically taxing for someone who's a new retiree. So those are things that you have to consider as well. Well, I think it's important. Uh, Social Security is certainly one of the big components, the retirement plan, even though you know a lot of people think it's not. It ends up being, uh, trust me, it's a difference maker. Um, I don't know if it's part – sometimes, Fred, I think it's too good of a deal. Yeah. But I, I don't know why, and I'm not suggesting right. it is. I'm just saying, uh, being human, sometimes I think sure. I look at people and go, wow, well, that, that a, seems like a lot of money. Well, it depends uh, which end of the of age distribution you're in. Uh, but again, I think it may be a bit like the uh, 
Roth versus traditional IRA. There are advantages and disadvantages to both, and you can calculate them very finely, but in the end, it does make a huge difference in most cases which way you go. And the same thing is true here. It's important you can have some advantages by claiming late, but if you make a mistake, it's not, for the most part, uh, catastrophic. And, exactly. that, and at the end of the day, it's we want to have the right attitude in retirement. We don't want to worry. And we don't. We want a plan that if it breaks at all, because plans are going to break. Things are yeah. going to happen. You just don't want plan, a plan to break catastrophically. Yeah. You want to be able to, to realize, look, you know, things get things get repaired eventually. So let's not create a strategy or an investment strategy or plan that basically has the potential to break in a catastrophic. I've seen a lot of plans that are built needlessly, uh, almost to assure the, the the investor client that they're going to visit potential uh, catastrophe when they really don't even need to take that level of uncertainty. So that's a real common issue. Um, why do they stay with this 8%? Is it a legal mandate that they stay, that every year you d- delay approximately yeah. 8% increase uh, well, I imagine in real at, terms? At some point, it was written into the law, and once it gets it's there, it's, it's difficult. To, it's kind of a ratchet. It's very hard to go back in the other direction to lower it now. The, the one thing that's, I don't know whether it's good or bad for retirees, but it's easier in terms of planning is you can't, uh, it used to be uh, for some people they could claim early and then pay back right. what they got right. and, and get it. And that's pretty much gone by. There are a few, for a while, there was a few people who could do that. But I think it's becoming increasingly. Uh, it's becoming a lot yeah. of things have either changed where you can't do it unless you're born before a certain day. I think yeah. 1954 is one of them. Yeah. Uh, and then as far as you used to be able to pay it back, now you have to do that within the first 12 months. Yeah. If you don't do it within the 12 months, then you can never go back. So they certainly begun to change things. And just the right. fact that they are they, they move the full retirement age backwards, it right. just further increases the penalty for taking it early. Right. And they could certainly I could you know, I see a lot of potential solutions to this, whether people like them or not. They could just make full retirement age at sixty eight or seventy and then you're essentially assessing a penalty uh, uh, right. that's really worse for taking it at sixty two than it would have been uh, when right. full retirement age was sixty. Yeah. The other thing which we haven't mentioned here is that uh uh, for most people, 65 is no longer the retirement age, right. but for uh, Medicare, it is. So Medicare is a very important aspect of retirement. So you want to, if you retire early, you have to have a bridge between where you are and 65 to uh, deal with your medical costs. It's become a Absolutely. real planning issue once again, because uh, uh, whether you like Obamacare or not, there were certain provisions of it for some people where uh, it was the difference getting that subsidy was the difference of being able to be retired or not because yep. the private insurance market has gotten so expensive now uh, that ba- if I had to throw out a number that's someone who's 60 or 62 that wants to retire before Medicare, you know, figure assign about a thousand a month a piece for is that oh reasonable? yeah and that's just for the premiums that's just and for then the premium. you have potential out-of-pocket expenses of maybe another six thousand so you could have a client that maybe had a million dollars uh they're with they're uh, delaying social security they're living off a maybe a taxable brokerage account on paper they're poor mm-hmm. uh, from an income standpoint since it's really draw all the subsidies are driven by income they could get you know, a heavy subsidy for health care. And so that allowed a lot of people, we may be for or against that, you know, a millionaire is getting a, a heavy subsidy. Uh, but it certainly has changed the dynamics back once again, where early retirement, when I say that pre-Medicare has become a pretty significant financial planning issue. Mm-hmm. We can. It's usually not as big, though, would you agree? Uh, 
we start throwing around those numbers, a thousand a month per person, but that might be for two years or three years. It's, it's, it's going to have some impact, but most of the time it still doesn't keep people from retiring when they want. Uh, it, it just, just it says, hey, maybe you're just going to spend a little less in retirement. And that's a trade-off. It does depend how early, though, because it does. You know, if you have someone who wants to retire at fifty-five and they don't have health care through their employer or something, you know, then there's ten years of that private health insurance that can be that can be a big difference maker in a financial plan. So, it's definitely it, it can be something that prevents people from retiring if it's depending on how long that time frame is. But exactly. if, it's, if we're talking sixty-three versus sixty-five, it's probably not. So it depends on a lot of things, but uh, it seems like. Uh, more often than not, the people will choose to retire a little bit early. Fred, with the new Illinois election, uh, just to kind of get on that for a minute, um, what do we have to look forward to from a financial slash economic slash taxation standpoint, state of Illinois over the next three or four years? Well, I think the answer is probably uh, not a whole lot uh, in terms of uh, uh, having a, a dramatic turnaround. I think what will happen in the short run is uh, kind of more of the same. Uh, they'll continue uh, spending more than the, the uh, budget allows. Uh, there's always this pie in the sky, uh, whether you like it or not. The idea of a progressive income tax is always the uh, lure of it. We can solve our problems that way. But the fact is uh, it would take uh, a long time. You'd have to, first of all, have a constitutional amendment that could come on the ballot until 2020. And then after that, you'd have to pass a, um, a progressive tax. So we're talking about two years before that would happen. And I think the, the, the question would be, uh, do the Democrats want to bite the bullet? They have the everything going their way in terms of uh, the governorship and, and uh, super majorities in both houses. So they could approve uh, putting a ballot uh, measure on for uh, uh, graduated tax, and they could uh, approve the tax once if that was approved. But whether they're willing to do that, I think is another question. A lot of Democrats are not as uh, liberal as you might think when it comes to raising taxes. And uh, is is that even a potential solution? If it <clears throat> wave a magic wand, well, two years a, from now we have a somewhat of a significant progressive uh, taxation in Illinois. Um, does that begin to solve? Not really, uh, unless you also uh, raise taxes to uh, for people who aren't millionaires. You, the, the millionaires are not going to. Uh, be able to solve the problem. First of all, there aren't enough of them. Secondly, they're mobile, so you can't necessarily do that. So some combination of, uh, of possibly uh, modestly progressive rates and uh, not necessarily lowering rates for other people might, might help a little bit, but we still have these major problems in, in terms of spending and dealing with pensions and things of that sort. Is there a sensible, a more sensible tax structure for Illinois than a flat? Uh, well, again, that's a... a a value judgment that okay. we have. I think that uh, a flat rate is uh, a good idea if you have substantial um, exemptions and, and deductions. So what I would do is keep a flat rate, but maybe increase the exemption level to such an extent that maybe people below twenty or thirty thousand wouldn't pay very much in taxes, which is almost the case now. So I have a view that Illinois is going bankrupt. I just don't know whether it's this t- in five years 10 or 30 or 50 but uh, it, yeah. it just seems like if they just keep doing what they're doing it's inevitable to me uh is that a wrong way of thinking uh it's not necessarily wrong but it's not the only option i think there, there are ways of of uh, kind of uh, creeping along for a long uh, and kind of uh, disabled but not necessarily bankrupt uh, which the state can probably uh 
managed for quite a long time. Straight, yeah, measured straight in decades? Yeah. Okay. So it's something that I may never see no. at, at my age. Uh, yeah. But it's it, when, it, when you look at the state of Illinois, and I know this really is not with this program, yeah. and I, I don't, I'm not trying to be political yeah. about it. I'm just, for people, we all live in Illinois, and you're, you're well-known and yeah. understand these issues better than most people. Uh, you see, you read about so many municipalities unable right, right. now. I, rem- I can't remember if it's 30 or 70 municipalities in the state of Illinois that, frankly, just are cutting right. services to people. Right. Um, how, how does this end? Well, that's a, that's a more difficult problem with the state, uh, the uh, local governments, because you may have some cities that uh, have lost population and still have big obligations. But the state, I think, is a little bit different. We're still a strong, rich state, and we have a lot of possibility. There's a a quote from uh, uh, Hemingway that someone asked, uh, one character asked another, how did you go bankrupt? And he said, uh, slowly and then suddenly. But I think uh, <laughs> Illinois probably is going to be slowly over a long period of time. We have time to make some uh, some adjustments. And as far as municipalities, even yeah. though that's not the state of Illinois issue, there's certainly no state of Illinois backdrop. I suppose no. politics could come into right. play in some. There's a winners and losers. Well, it's unlikely that the, the, the state's going to assume the Instead right. of local governments when the state can't has its own problems to deal with. So the difference between municipalities and states is just, it's almost like, the diff- in some ways, it's difference between states and the federal government. It's yeah. just a size, it's about largesse. Yeah. I mean, the state of Illinois, uh, probably less, people are less likely to move out of a state of Illinois than they are to move out of Peoria. Or, right. Or, and uh, uh, and Peoria, one, but. you know, if one uh, medium-sized city loses a lot of uh, Industries, they could have a very serious pro- problem. While it's not qu- not as likely Illinois is going to lose that that major uh, amount of business all at one time, right? And that, and we've certainly seen no no shortage of right. that over the last yeah. three decades. And if you want, I, uh, there's not a lot of good news. But the, if you want good news, of the course. fact is that uh, the uh, interest rates that the uh, state of Illinois is paying compared to uh, more sound places is only. Uh, a percent or so more. Why, why is that? It has to be the market. I guess. Well, I think Rhetorically, the market, why the market that? thinks that the state has uh, resources they haven't tapped, and they're much more likely to be able to pay off than you or I may think in terms of impending. At least over the next ten years or fifteen right. or twenty years, they may not issue hundred-year bonds to them and feel right. that same way. But for a ten-year bond or a but five-year, investors are not uh, uh, sentimental or not charitable, so no. they're they're buying. With the expectation that the the, the differential one percent or so uh, takes into account the so uh, that's and that's true with the federal debt too. I yeah. mean, the the international players are willing to pay get paid next to nothing to hold our debt. Right. They don't have to. They're not. It's not charity. They're just assessing that. Well, it's still the safe haven. Right. And uh, so, so it's not great that we pay more, but it's not like we're paying twice or three times. It's not like a junk bond that uh, has to pay fifteen percent while. Other businesses are paying five or six percent, right? Because that, if if it was truly that risk, if the marketplace assessed that kind yeah. of risk, that can kind of go from I went slowly to suddenly, right, right, right. and then you get into that vicious death spiral. Well, I think I feel a little bit better than at least you know, <laughs> at least in two thousand eighteen or nineteen, state of it knows going to make it through. Well, Fred, I uh, appreciate you being here. Uh, I think two weeks from now, I think uh, we're going to have Mrs. Pickard, who used to be your one of your teachers. Uh, on our radio show because we're going to do some charitable work uh, with uh, the, 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 I think it's the Catholic Worker House. I'm sorry, but my son Paul's doing it. And so she's going to come in and we're going to talk about that. Uh, I know it's not always, that's not going to be a show that's purely financial, but uh, it's, it's going to be about us giving back to the community and, and kind of highlighting the needs 
of this in this particular case uh you know the daily food kitchen uh that they run and uh, we're happy to do that so we're going to have her on i don't know how much by the time she tells us all the dirt on the four rudy kids that went through saint <laughs> matthews you know i'm probably going to learn a lot of new things maybe about paul i'll probably I was going to say yeah. <laughs> anyway well uh, that uh thanks for listening to paul rudy's on the money we'll be back in a couple of weeks thanks for listening Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.